This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey friends, welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you're here today. This podcast is for parents or anybody helping raise kids, and I hope that each episode brings you some encouragement, some connection, and that you feel community in these conversations. And if you ever want to reach out to me or you have something on your mind about something we talked about on the show, please reach out to me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can email me, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. And we also have a Facebook group. So any of those places, we would love to connect with you and bring you into this community. Parenting can be really hard. And my hope is that this podcast will be helpful to you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, We're back with brand new episodes this week. We took a four-week break from recording over the summer and re-aired some awesome episodes with Ralphie Jacobs from Simply On Purpose, Rosalia Rivera from Consent Parenting, and then two episodes with Katie Arnold where we talked about raising adventurous kids and the importance of unorganized play. Today, returning guest David Thomas, licensed therapist, is coming back on the show to talk about raising emotionally strong boys. Now, if you haven't listened to his first episode, go back to episode 42 of this podcast. It aired July 20th, 2021. And you can hear all about our conversation about simply raising boys and what that looks like. This episode, we get a little more in depth about the emotional side of boys and why it's important to nurture that. David is the Director of Family Counseling at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee. His brand new book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, is out now. And he's the co-author of eight other books, including the best-selling books, Wild Things and All My Kids on Track. As a licensed therapist, he works with kids and parents on all kinds of different topics. David is warm and welcoming and encouraging. That's, that's the thing. I want to talk to other humans who are encouraging. And so I hope you feel that in this conversation today. I know I did. All right, friends. And if you do love this podcast episode, please share it with your friends on social media. Tag us. Why is everyone yelling? Send a text message to your group of friends who might be interested in what we're talking about here today. That is one of the best ways potential new listeners can find us, along with leaving a rating interview on iTunes or Spotify. That is super helpful. When people see that there are ratings and reviews on the show, they take a look at them and see if they want to listen. So anything you can leave there is super helpful. It takes about one minute. All right. This podcast is supported by Gooder. If you are looking for an amazing pair of sunglasses that don't slip around, move around when you are out on the go, this is where you need to go. I'm sure many of you have heard about Gooder, but they have fashionable, functional, and best of all, affordable shades that are very durable, which I find to be very important (laughs) with little kids in the house. They have really fun colors and styles and really classic styles. I love the Amelia Earhart Ghosted Me. And you all can save 15% when you go to gooder.com and use the code Lindsay15. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-5. All right, friends. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Thomas. 
Uh, all right. Well, back on the podcast today, we have David Thomas of Raising Boys and Girls. Welcome back to the show, David. I'm delighted to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on the new book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys. Thank you. I'm excited for it to be out in the world. So tell me a little bit about your heart behind the book. You know, I think after having done this work as a therapist for over 25 years now and having a chance to sit front row to seeing some of the same things over and over, I started to feel a bit like that famous Desmond Tutu quote that I put at the end of the book about, you know, we can keep dragging people out of the river or we can walk upstream and figure out why they're falling in. And I couldn't begin to tell you how many families I've worked with over the years, super common that families seek us out who are navigating the transition of separation or divorce and how common it is that one of the chapters within that story would be that the father in that family, you know, found himself in the middle of an affair or in the middle of substance abuse or in the middle of one of these categories that I talk about in the book that men consistently lead over and over and over infidelity internet pornography substance abuse suicide these common to not the common denominator and all that being that it's men who can't name and navigate what they feel so they're working hard to try to numb that out or shut that down in some way and so having sat front row to that story or a version of that story over and over and over i just I just want to be able to say at the end of my work that I did everything I knew to do to try to equip boys on the front side of development, that they can name and navigate their experience in a way that they don't have to have that chapter in their story, that they don't have to find themselves in extreme efforts to try to numb out or shut down whatever it is they're feeling or experiencing because they've been equipped all throughout their lives with the skills and the tools to name and navigate their experience. And so... I just am excited to get to be about that work with other parents and educators. I was so excited to write about that work and just take everything I've learned in 25 years of working with boys of all ages and talk about how we can put feet to that work. Because as a parent myself, I know what it feels like to read a book and agree with everything. Think, yes, I love that. I love that. Now, how do you do that? Like, mm -hmm. what do I do with that? And so I end every single chapter with five intentional practices. Like I want parents to feel like, okay, as soon as I finish reading this chapter, I know five practical things I could be doing today, tonight with the boys that I love. So that was super important to me. I also had an opportunity with my publisher to write a workbook for elementary age boys called Strong and Smart. That is one more tool of how to make this content doable, accessible, usable for boys in that space. I love so that. So thanks for letting me talk about it today. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's so interesting to me that when you're seeing the young boys come in, that a lot of that is stemming from the older generation and their family. And your thought process is if, if they would have had this service and this work in their life as kids, maybe their child wouldn't be experiencing what they're experiencing. Absolutely, because I have seen the wreckage of what that chapter in a man's story means for his kids. I've seen the ripple effect of that a thousand times over. And and it's devastating to watch that residual wash over kids. And so I do. I just want to do everything possible. And, and, you know, I sat with a dad just last week in my office. And even if it hasn't reached that kind of place in a story, he said to me, you know, David, he's both a husband and a father. And actually, this dad was a professional baseball player. And he said, my entire life, I have been told 
to stop feeling and to not ask for help. And he said, they even train us in the game of baseball how to show little to no emotion mm-hmm. so that an opponent couldn't feel like they had accessed me or penetrated me in any way. And so he said, I cannot tell you how all of that training has made my journey as a married man and a father so unbelievably difficult. And I'm having to undo, unlearn and relearn different ways for myself before I could ever hope to teach my kids. And I love that dad's honesty and his vulnerability. And I think his story is quite honestly a majority of men's story. Like most of us grew up absorbing these messages of don't feel, don't ask for help. I think it's why men are so skilled in suppression and self-reliance. And so we are going to have to unlearn and relearn some new ways of being in the world so that we can equip and offer that to the kids we love and in particular to the boys we love. And I feel like there's definitely a shift happening in language we see in schools and, you know, boys don't need to be this like big tough guy. You know, you look generations back and you think of um, the grandparents saying like, don't cry like a little girl and things like that. And we have seen that shift, but then there's also got to be this intentionality to to it as well, not just assuming the shift is happening elsewhere. You had a different story, though, like your upbringing, even though you are, you know, in that generation where boys are being fed that information, you didn't get that from your family. You saw your dad be super vulnerable, right? I did. And and I don't take for granted the uniqueness of that and how incredibly different my father was from the majority of the men that I grew up knowing. And, you know, certainly the coaches I encountered and all the different men that I had the opportunity to intersect with in my life. My dad was a man who was very connected with how he felt. And so I fortunately did grow up in a home where that was welcomed and not just from my mom, but from my dad as well. And I think that's the reality for a lot of boys is that they're getting opportunity to sit front row and see their moms use an emotional vocabulary, see their moms work through emotions, see their moms talking openly about that, but not their dads. And I did have both. And so I think because I feel very privileged that that was my story, I want so much more to be about equipping other dads to walk that way with their sons. Why do men typically have more difficulty talking about their emotions, processing them, sharing them with the important people in their lives? Yeah, I think there are three primary contributing factors. And the first would be if... If you and I were to think back on those early well visits with the pediatricians with our kids, you know, every parent knows somewhere in those 12, 18, 24 month visits, we're going to be asked the question of how many words is your child saying? And what research would tell us is that girls are often saying twice as many words as boys. And so if her general vocabulary is more expansive, of course, her emotional vocabulary is going to be more expansive. So we're simply going to have to labor longer to help boys develop a full, expansive emotional vocabulary. So I would say that's the first place. I would say, secondly, somewhere around nine to ten, boys begin to channel all primary emotions, fear, sadness, confusion, disappointment into one emotion. And that's anger. Oh, that's hard. It is. And I think culturally we support that. We say in a lot of ways to boys, it's okay to be angry. That's fully masculine. It's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to be scared. And so that's part of of breaking into that messaging. And I would say that's the third thing that I think is the third hurdle we've got to jump is that culturally we just send so many messages to boys, to males, 
throughout their growth and development. I think about the classic phrase of man up. Like mm -hmm. if we really dissect man up somewhere in that most of the time, what we're saying is stop feeling mm. and do this on your own. Like we're feeding and fueling that suppression and self-reliance. And so there are so many ways that I think we've got to think about, consider deeply what we're saying to boys alongside these natural realities that are just a part of, they have fewer words. They're going to instinctively channel everything toward anger. And then if we reinforce that with messages, I'm never surprised, never surprised to encounter boys, adolescent males or adult men who have a lot of trouble in that space. You know, it's it's reassuring to me that fact that you just said, because when my 10 year old does act in anger, when he's fearful, he does that a lot. When he it, you can almost sense it like he feels like something's not about to go the way he thinks it needs to go. And I get scared. Like, why is he so angry? And it makes me think, what did I do wrong? Like, and then my mind spirals into, is he going to be physical? Like with his spouse later in life? Why is he being so physical right now? And so knowing that that is like a normal response helps me. But what do we do yeah. with that? Yes. And, and I can't tell you often, I sit with parents, moms in particular, who talk about seeing early evidence of that anger and feeling afraid of that anger, yeah. understandably, and then forecasting that anger, as you just described. I think that's most moms' experiences. Now, what I would want to say to any mom listening is there's no need to fear if we're about this work on the front side of development of helping him look beneath the anger because anger is a secondary emotion. It's a derivative emotion. There's always something underneath. And you know, I tell a story in the workbook and I can't tell you how often I've heard a version of this. You know, here we are timing wise heading toward the beginning of the school year. And every year I will hear boys of all ages, particularly elementary age boys, talk about how they have an all about me project. That is common in classrooms the beginning of the year where you kind of introduce yourself to your classmates. And this first grade boy had to make a poster and he had to pick five pictures. You can only have five on it that told your classmates, your new friends, something about yourself. And he and his mom were working on this project the day before it was due and had over 20 photos out on the table and he was having a really hard time figuring out which ones and he very much wanted to pick two photos that he was he couldn't articulate this but the mom knew worried someone was going to make fun of those photos or say something about it you know one was in his scout uniform and one was on a vacation and so she sensed this was going on and was trying to draw out something he would give nothing, which is common for a lot of boys. And he was getting more and more worked up the harder it became, harder the closer it got to having to pick the five pictures. And so she said, you know what? I can tell you're feeling a lot of feelings. Why don't we take a break? And he said, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. you know, immediately was his response. And she's this wise mom stopped and she said, you know what? I can tell there's a lot going on inside of you and nothing productive is going to come from us trying to push through. So why don't you take some time they had been working on a top five list, which I teach in the book and the workbook, and he was refusing to do that. And she said, I can tell you're feeling a lot of feelings. And he yelled, it's kind of funny to think about it now, but he yelled, I'm not angry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> which there's truth in his words. There's actually something below the anger, but it's comical to think he was declaring he wasn't angry while yelling at his mom. And I think that's such a picture of it. And later, after some working through he was able to say, I'm worried. 
I'm scared people are going to laugh at me if they if I choose these two pictures, but I really want to use them because they tell a lot about me. And so once he could do that dissecting with his mom and get access to what was underneath, he could work that through differently. But if we aren't doing any of that work and it is work, yeah, I think boys just get deeper and deeper into that pattern and they just explode. It comes out sideways in moments like that. It primarily gets funneled into anger and they don't take the emotion to something constructive. And I'm sure it's a different emotion for different kids. My son that I'm specifically thinking about when you're talking about this, it is worry for sure. Like it is same example yes. as, as that mom in your workbook. We went to buy him new goggles because his goggles kept leaking or coming up when in his swim meets. And we went to Dick's and got new goggles. He was so concerned that these weren't the goggles that were going to stick and he was going to mess up in his swim meet. And he was so mad and, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, we're going to try. Like, that's why we're here. We're trying. But it it turned into this angry scene at Dick's. Yes. And I know that the underlying thing was he was worried about his swim meet. And so then I get angry because I'm thinking, you should be grateful. I drove you to Dick's and bought new, you know, swim goggles. Sure. Sure. <laughs> that is a perfect picture of it right there. And and what I'd want to say would be two things to that great story you shared is one it's super common. And as you heard me say, it'll stay common unless we teach something different. And teaching something different is work we do best, not in close proximity to an amped up moment. You know, I think a lot of parents are like, I was trying to talk him mm -hmm. down right then. And he wasn't in what I call his thinking brain. You know, at that point, he was in that reptile brain. And it's really difficult for any one of us to make connections. So much of the work I talk about in the book and the workbook is work we do preventatively in calm moments so that boys can access the skills and tools in the right moments. But what I also would say, secondly, is that these are learned skills, no different than riding a bike, swimming in the deep end of a pool, shooting hoops, any number of things. And think on just even that example of swimming. We don't take kids to swimming lessons one time and then they've got it for the rest of their lives. Like I took swimming lessons five summers in a row mm -hmm. and then I joined swim team and swam for 10 more years. And so Think about how much time I spent in the pool perfecting my strokes. That's not something we do overnight. And these learned skills of regulation will be things we want to be practicing with kids all throughout their growth and development, but not something they'll develop full mastery around by the time they're six, eight, 10, or 12. And that would be something else I would want to say to any parent listening who finds himself forecasting all the possibilities. I was with a mom yesterday who has a 13-year-old son. And every developmental theorist would say the stretch between 13 and 15 is the worst episode of a boy's life. I'm scared. Like that's as, <laughs> I, it's understandable you would be. It is a complicated stretch where for any one of us, we've never felt more insecure, more uncomfortable in our own skin, more unsteady. And so she was fearing a lot of things. And I kept saying to her, you know, you can't make any long-term declarations about what you see with any 13-year-old boy. I don't want to go down in history as who I was at 13. You know, I was a developing person, as is your son. So as our kids are developing, as they are, they are learning these skills, we want to keep playing the long game of what it will look like to implement these skills differently when they're 25 than when they're 15, when they're 35 than when they're 10. Hey friends, a quick break here to let you know about the Lash Therapy by Hello Skincare that I've been using. I have never been one for eyelash extensions or anything like that, and I actually just wasn't sure I believed that something 
like a serum could make my eyelashes look so much thicker and longer. But man, the lash therapy by Hello Skincare has amplified the appearance of my lashes like I can't believe. I truly just didn't believe it would work as well as it did. I apply it every night and then in the daytime when I put mascara on, it applies so much better as well. My mascara stays on better and it just looks better. Now, Hello Skincare also has an awesome C Juvenate Super Serum. That's what everybody's talking about is the vitamin C serum these days. And they have a really great product. I use this on my skin every morning as well. You all can check out Hello Skincare when you go to helloskincare.com and you can save 15% when you use the code LindsayH20. All right, friends, back to the show. You know, I just had a thought as you were explaining that and talking about that 13 to 15 age. I recently read a post from um, an author that I really respect and I follow her work and it was about how to be a good first boyfriend. Um, You know, Carrie, she's been on your podcast before. She has four girls. And I read the post and I thought, oh my gosh, this is such great information. I want to instill this in my kids. But at the same time as the mom of only boys, I started getting really protective and like nervous about wow, like that's a really um, transformative time in a boy's life too. And like, I want him to be all those things. But at the same time, he's going through all these changes too. And I'm like, how do I, and and that's that has a lot to do with what this book is about. Because if you're going to be a good first boyfriend, you got to be in tune with your emotions, right? So I'm just curious your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, well, I first would say I'm with you. I love Carrie. I'm so grateful for her voice in this world and totally. the great content she's putting out. And and you're 100% correct. In fact, I had a mom say to me, this is one of the highest compliments I've been given since this book came out. She was like, David, you should have called your book Husband Training. Mm. And, and I love that. It encouraged me. She goes, because these are the skills every boy needs to be in relationships with the opposite sex, with their coworkers, with their friends, with their family. And so it is everything you're saying, and and my great hope being that you know even the story you and I just got through sharing, you know, to the degree that things don't have to come out sideways, that I don't have to. I talk a lot about how boys swing between blame and shame, and my definition of blame is discharge pain. Mm. That I'm not just discharging pain all over the people that I love because I can't work that through. I have a quote in the book where I talk about you know males who are in pain cause pain Mm -hmm. unless they learn to name and navigate pain. And I think thus the statistics you and I talked about on the front side of this conversation and the realities that we could look to our left and to our right and see evidence of sadly and we'll stay the same unless we lock arms as adults who care about boys to really commit to this kind of work that I think does prepare them to be boyfriends and someday husbands and fathers themselves. How do we talk to our boys about that? I mean, this is you going off topic a little bit, but my oldest is 10 and I'm like, that's going to be in like three or four years. Yes. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book, one of the five intentional practices is using something that boys already love. So when we're watching movies with boys, boys love movies. You know, we're watching television shows. I want to really encourage parents to hit pause at the end of an episode and have a quick two to five minutes worth of conversation about what you saw. Where did you see strength of character? Where did you see Mm. specifically to this conversation evidence of a good boyfriend? Mm. Where did you see evidence of a lousy boyfriend? You know, 
just last night, my uh, wife and I went to go see with our daughter who's in college uh, where the crawdads sing. And we had read the book and the movie's out right now. There's a lot of evidence of a boyfriend with character and a boyfriend without in that movie. And we had some great dialogue on the way home around that. So use those kinds of moments where boys already have interest in that space and we can help them make some connections. I talk about too, you know, when we even focus on teaching regulation, so many boys understandably love sports. When we're watching ESPN, I want you to look for evidence of professional athletes, coaches, and players who are demonstrating regulation. I have a practice in the book called Walk It Off and encourage boys to start looking for athletes they see who get frustrated on the court of the field and are walking up and down the field to work through some of that emotion as opposed to the numbers of players and sadly coaches we know who bow up against another coach another player or referee and get themselves thrown out of the game adult men behaving badly where we get to see a lot of evidence of dysregulation as well so let's use these things that are right in front of us as opportunity I love that example. And I know you talk about working through something and replacing that language, calm down, stop yelling with work through it. Oh man, I can't tell you how many times I've told my son to calm down. And I know that's not the right thing. I don't want to be told to calm down. It doesn't feel good. (laughs) So work through it. I'm like, that is such a great replacement. I love that. I think it is better language. I really do. And you know, as we were talking about man up, I would challenge a lot of parents to think about how often we use calm down. It's it's a common phrase. And, you know, the challenge I make in the book is this. I think many times if we've not taught these learned skills, hearing the words calm down for a lot of boys, they may understand what it means, but they have no clue how to do it. Mm. It's the equivalent of saying to me, play the cello. <laughs> well, it's like, OK, I know what the cello looks like. <laughs> I've seen a person play it. I have no clue how to even hold it. I don't know how to, you know, pluck the strings. I don't know any of those things. And so back to these are learned skills that not only have to be taught, but have to be practiced over time. And so I want us to think about using more of that language of work it through. And then again, I walk you through creating a top five list of regulation skills, healthy coping skills that boys then are going to practice over time that they replace with the instinctive things like yelling, screaming, hitting, kicking, those sorts of things. And I do talk about within that, you know, boys, we as males have a lot of physicality to our emotions. It's why research would tell us that preschool age boys in a classroom are much more prone to biting, hitting, kicking, screaming. It's why adolescent boys are more likely to punch holes in drywall. It's that need to release a physicality that's often there for boys and why they gravitate toward that. And so part of my top five list is let's put a lot of what I call movement-based strategies on that list. Jumping on a trampoline, shooting hoops. I have a fifth grade boy who told me yesterday he throws a tennis ball against the garage door. I'm like, that's fantastic. He's understanding my body feels different when I have some kind of physical release and I'm not as likely to turn that on someone that I love, that discharge pain. We have a lot of slamming doors. And I'm thinking back to my childhood, though, and I'm like, I think I slammed a lot of doors, too, as a girl. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of girls who have some physicality to the, to the emotion. And I love that you brought that up because think about it. That's hard evidence right there of that need for a release. Mm-hmm. And can I even go a step further and say what a lot of parents do, understandably so, don't hear me criticizing this, is say, you slam that door again and I'm going to take it off its hinges. And plenty of parents did. But think about it. 
I didn't replace that need for release Mm -hmm. with another release, a healthier release. So that's what I'm talking about with a calm down idea. It's like just yelling, calm down or just yelling. I'm going to take your door off its hinges. It's not helping kids if we've not replaced that instinctive tendency with a practice skill. Yeah. One of the hardest things with parenting is when your kid doesn't respond to like, don't do that. Like we don't slam doors in this house. We don't talk that way in this house. And you feel like they immediately need to respond. And if they don't immediately respond, they're disrespecting you and how to process those. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, we're processing high emotions as the parent. They're processing high emotions as the kid. And sometimes that's really challenging when like we're walking through our own emotions. It absolutely is. And and I'd say two things to that. One, we talk a lot in our practice about how our, our objective needs to always be remaining the calmest person in the room. Mm. And I'm not at all saying that's an easy thing to do, no. but it is, it is a needed thing. And it is the easiest thing to do is to match our kids' intensity. So mm-hmm. that's where I start right out of the gate in this book talking about you know, we only take the kids we love as far as we've gone ourselves. So if I don't have a top five list, if I don't have practice regulation skills, that's a hundred percent the beginning point, not even stepping into teaching that to my kids yet until I've got those in place so that in those amped up moments, I can become, even if I'm not instinctively the calmest person in the room, I can become the calmest person in the room. And I have to tell you that I've seen more evidence of that or the need for that in the last couple of years than ever before. I think the pandemic Mm -hmm. and this political climate have highlighted that. I was in the airport a few weeks ago on that day. You may remember the day when we set a record number of delays and cancellations Mm -hmm. in our country. Most that had ever happened in one day. And I was trying to fly from Nashville to Orlando to speak. And I had three delays and then I had two cancellations. And I was in the airport for hours, trapped I have never seen so many dysregulated adults in my Mm. life. And sadly, kids all over the airport watching this happen. I saw two adult men, professional men, be handcuffed by security and drug off for screaming violently at a gate agent. And I, what I want to say is I don't want to paint myself to be the hero in this story because I was feeling dysregulated too. I was panicked. I had to get to Orlando. I was under contract to speak at this event. And I remember thinking to myself, If you don't do something constructive, you could end up sounding off to a gay agent. That's not who I want to be in this world. There's nothing helpful that comes from that. And so I remember saying to myself, all right, right, David, practice what you preach. You wrote this book, like go get a cold drink of water, start doing some laps around the airport. I was looking at my watch, chat, chat, you know, tracking my steps in that moment, figuring out how I could take my emotion to something constructive. And so it is of great importance because kids learn more from observation than information that we model this for kids. And may I also just say, I would love to challenge any parent listening. I want you to narrate your experience as often as possible. So this afternoon, if you are in the car with your kids and you're stuck in traffic and you're worried you're going to be late, that happens to every one of us as parents. I want you to talk that out loud for kids. You know, say things like, you know what? I feel stress in my body. My mm-hmm. shoulders feel tight. My neck feels tight. I'm worried. I wish we left the house five minutes earlier. At the next stoplight, I'm going to practice a minute of deep breathing. At the next stoplight, I'm going to turn on some calm music. You know, let kids hear you doing the work of regulation. Let kids hear you talking about how emotions register inside of you. 
let kids sit front row to the grown-ups they trust the most in this world, narrating, naming, and navigating their emotions in a healthy way. Ooh, that's good. Man, that's good. You know, I do when I do that, which isn't always, you know. <laughs> um, Me neither. <laughs> I do see, especially with my oldest son, as they get older, they understand more. They just, they do. They have more life experience, right? Um, I see him kind of tilt his head. And like process, like seeing me go through that and seeing, oh, that's why she's kind of like rushing and feeling like that. And I see him seeing himself in me. And I've heard you talk about this too. Man, my first son, he is a carbon copy of me. And I for sure project what he's doing on like how I felt in the past, which can be a really good thing because I can empathize with him a lot. When I see him having these like really fearful emotions stir up and him getting kind of like, you know, angry. I I feel that. My husband doesn't feel it as much because he's very different from my husband. Um, But can you just talk about how sometimes as parents we project based on what our kids are doing because we see ourselves in them? We do. It is so instinctive for that to happen. And in my experience, if we are not paying enough attention in particular to when we see evidence of ourselves and our kids, what can happen without our being aware that it's happening is we can end up being harder on that kid than any Mm -hmm. of the others. We can parent them harder. And what's underneath that is a lot of good intention. You know, there's this desire, even if we never articulate it, of I don't want you to struggle in some of the same ways I have. So I want to try to parent that behavior right out of you or parent that instinct out of you, which we simply cannot do. What we can do and what you and I are discussing we should do is model for them what it looks like to navigate those moments, particularly if they're wired in the same way, you know, to meet those kids with great awareness. I love that you touched on that because I think it can bring us to this really great place of awareness. And, you know, the research would currently tell us that if a kid has at least one parent who struggles with anxiety, they're seven times more likely. And when I share that statistic, I think parents who struggle with anxiety can go straight to a place of shame, you know, and thinking, great, I caused it. Mm -hmm. Look, I'm the contributor, as opposed to going to a place of what the research also tells us is that parent's capacity for awareness and understanding and empathy is like an Olympic gold medalist because Mm -hmm. you know it, you've lived in that skin. So I want you to use that. If, If you have a child who struggles in that way to say, hey, buddy, I know what that feels like. I've lived in that same skin. And here's some things I've learned along the way. Here are ways I want to help you. Here are things I didn't know when I was your age that I wish I had. So using that from an advantage point as opposed to just going to a place of shame that I may be the contributor in some way. Okay. I'm super curious about these conversations with moms versus dads because um, (laughs) – my husband likes to tell me I over talk the boys and we definitely talked about this in the first podcast. I got to tell you, David, of all the podcasts I've done for this show, yours might be the only one he's actually listened to because I was like, it's a guy. We're talking about all boy stuff like, you know, um, and, you know, he agreed with pretty much everything you said, but he's always telling me you over talk them. You over talk them. They just need to be told simply and firmly what to do and where to go and move on. Um, But I also think my husband, because of this conversation that we've had, um, like talking about emotions, processing emotions, there's probably a little bit of that 
in him that he doesn't do. Right. So like I have that piece. He doesn't have that piece. Um, and I'm trying really hard to get my husband to walk through how they're feeling rather than just like saying, yeah, do this, do that. Like, I understand you feel this way first, but I'm just curious, like, how is this conversation different with moms and dads? Because we're so different from each other. Am I being confusing here? (laughs) Not at all. I think it's a great question. And I'll first say, I'm so honored your husband would listen. And, (laughs) And I would say, I think that's super common. And maybe one of the things that we could learn from that, and this is not assuming that every mom talks too much and every dad talks too little, but it is to say a lot do. And I think we could learn from each other and meet in the middle. And so I would challenge dads listening, you know, before you get too quick to jump on, you know, giving feedback to your wife about talking too much, ask if you're doing enough narrating to what I just said, because I, I very clearly say to dads in this book, boys have got to see that emotions reside in the life of a man. Mm hmm. And back to that self-reliance piece, I just don't think enough boys get to hear that. In fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is how often over the years I have asked boys, tell me who two or three of your mom's closest friends are. And boys can rattle that off like that. I almost never have boys have trouble with that. They know their mom's closest friends. If I flip the question and say, tell me about your dad's closest friends, I've had boys who can't name one. Mm -hmm. And it's common that I have boys who can't get to three. And that's... That's the self-reliance piece to me where boys aren't getting to hear adult men talk enough and they don't get an opportunity to sit front row enough of the time to see men in intimate relationship where they're sharing honestly about their lives. And so that's, again, a challenge right back to me. Just this week, I spent time on Monday with our pastor, who's a dear friend of mine and has been for three decades. And I came home and told my kids, like, can I tell you something Carter asked me today? One of the ways he really challenged me to think and, and what I want to do with that. Like I, I want my kids in general, sons in particular, to hear me talk about what that looks like, how I need that in my life, how other men know me, challenge me, point things out for me that I may not be able to see clearly myself. And so I think that's one of the ways to your great question that we as men can do more of that where you all do an amazing job, generally speaking, as women. But I think to the talk less – talk more scenario. I do think there is some real wisdom to looking at where we could learn from each other and where we could kind of meet in the middle in that space. And I, I love your honesty because I do think there is a tendency, you know, again, all the way back to the beginning where, where girls are saying twice as many words as boys that you have a lot of language that you fold around explanation as women sometimes. And sometimes it is a little too much. And we as men can be great at being concrete and directive in ways that benefit boys but not great sometimes in enough of that narration that I talked about a few minutes ago. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Sometimes I, sometimes I feel like I'm a little girl magnet. Like I have all boys, but we'll be at the pool and these little girls will just come up to me and start telling me stories and talking to me. And I'm like, maybe they just sense that I don't get this enough at home. I don't know what it is, (laughs) but I'm also like, Maybe I wasn't cut out for that anyway, you know, because I do find myself being sad at times. Like, I just want someone to talk to and they just want to wrestle and run around. And, you know, their conversations are so short. But maybe I would be exhausted if someone was talking to me all the time. (laughs) There's pluses and minuses to both, right? Absolutely. And that just makes me smile and laugh. I love that. I love that those girls are looking out for you. Maybe they are. 
that amazing mom over there. I think she needs a little more conversation in her life. I'm the edge over that direction. This little That's girl so was great. like, do you only have boys? And I was like, yes. And then she starts telling me all these stories about her camp that day. And I'm like, I learned more about what this little girl did at camp all day. than I learned what my two boys did at soccer camp for the whole week. I know it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. It really is fascinating. I was carpool. My sons were carpooling one year with a little girl in our neighborhood and they're great. And I, my wife is a teacher. So she did most of the driving because she was heading to school already for her job. But I drove one morning when she was at a conference and I had the exact same experience you did. By the time we got to school, I was like, I have learned more in this <laughs> 15 minute drive than I have in the last three weeks yeah. from their reporting. I jokingly said to her mom, could I take her out for a bagel next Saturday? I've got so many more questions yes. about what's going on in the grade. Yes. It's so good. I, one of my closest friends, we've moved away since then, but oftentimes her daughter would come over with and play with the boys. And I just like enjoyed those moments with her so much because I don't have a daughter and I just, it, it was a really special time. You know what is, I think, important, though, if I could say this to the, the conversation we're sharing is I think sometimes we can accidentally assign responsibility to boys. Even if we never say this out loud, we're kind of thinking he needs as many words as she does. And the truth of the matter is he doesn't. Mm. His reporting doesn't need to look identical. But the other mistake I think we can make is just saying kind of the whole boys will be boys. Well, mm -hmm. he just doesn't talk. Well, he just doesn't ever tell things. And he does need to develop some skills in that space. And so I have a chapter on inward and outward and talking about developing more outward skills. And so it's not that we want it to look identical, but it is that we want him to develop some skills. And again, like everything else, unless he develops and practices the skills, they won't ever become instinctive. I love that. Yeah, there's that. I've seen people with putting shirts on their little boys that say like, Something about not being boys will be boys, but boys will be gentlemen and kind and courteous and all yes. these things. And I'm like, there's, there is a balance in the middle there somewhere because there is a point where boys will be boys. Like they're going to be more physical, but intervening for those very important things so that like we hit on with the post Carrie did so that that'll translate to being a good partner someday and, and all those things. So yeah, striking that balance can be challenging. Yeah. I have a mom I'm working with right now, and I love that she says this regularly to her son. She will say in different moments when she is helping boys develop these muscles, I want you to know, she has teenage boys, she said, I want you to know that I'm always parenting you with the plan to have a great relationship mm -hmm. with your wife someday. Isn't that beautiful? Like yes. casting a vision for, I want my daughter-in-law someday to, be, to say to me a version of, thanks for raising a guy who fill in the blank so many things as opposed to wondering what were you all doing over the last 20 years? <laughs> when did you forget to develop some important skills along the way? And I think it's great. She says, David, I'm, I'm not only casting a vision for them, but I am for myself. Like I'm reminding myself. And unless you are laboring in these places, you won't necessarily have those kind of relationships with your daughter-in-law someday. So I'm going to end on kind of a, a hard note, which is the fact that you know, the suicide rate for men is much higher than women. And, and a lot of this goes back to men not reaching out for help or processing their emotions. And so I know that that is also like a big, big part of your heart behind this work. So can you just talk a little bit? We'll finish off with um, that association and how we can intervene early so that hopefully 
if our boys become depressed as adults or anything like that, they have tools. Yes. I would say, as I was doing the research for this book, I came across a terrifying statistic that was unbelievably difficult for me to type. It's still hard for me to talk about. But it, the current stat is that globally, so across the planet, across the globe, across the globe on average, one man dies by suicide every minute of every day. Mm. And it just overwhelms me to say that out loud still, but it is a sobering reality that I think we have to come to terms with. And, you know, just this morning I was flipping through a magazine and there was a picture of a young 28 year old man. And it said the caption was 28 year old man dies. And I immediately, as I do, went to a place of thinking he died by suicide. You know, it never crossed my mind. He might have died by illness. It could yeah. have been, a, you know, any number of things I didn't even go there because I just knew I knew two sentences in that's what I would find and I did and it's because it's that common it's because we're reading those kind of articles every day it's because I've seen that reality in 25 years of doing this work and one of the definitions we study even all the way back to when I was in graduate school is that you know for an individual who dies by suicide they begin to believe that their pain exceeds their resources mm. and part of the mission of this book for me was I don't want another boy, adolescent male or adult man to believe that their pain exceeds their resources. I want them to feel like they've got resources inside of them. They've got resources around them that if we're training emotionally strong boys against self-reliance and toward asking for help, that will always be instinctive. That I would never believe my pain exceeded my resources, but I would always know I had access to these skills my Parents and educators had helped me develop and these people around me because I had always known what it looked like to reach out and ask for help. That's so good. I'm yeah. so glad you're doing this work. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored you let me come on and talk about this work. I'm so thankful for you letting me just be a part of what has been such a rich, meaningful conversation about a topic that clearly I feel strongly about. So thank you so much for this. The ripple effect of this from the moms that listen to the dads that listen to the grandmas that listen, the ripple effect that this is going to have on their kids' lives is big. The ripple effect of people that have read your book is big. So, um, yeah, I'm cheering you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate you. I hope you took something important and tangible from this conversation. Thank you, David, for coming on the podcast. You all can find David on Instagram. He's Raising Boys and Girls. Definitely go check out his book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys. I would love to connect with you personally. I'm Lindsay Hines 626 on Instagram. And this podcast, we have an Instagram. It's Why Is Everyone Yelling? You can learn more about the network, Sandy Boy Productions, at sandyboyproductions.com. Thanks for being here. Share the show with a friend. Have a wonderful day, and we will see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling? <laughs>